Well, if you haven't gone on to our website and read the reports from our Kazakhstan and Ireland team, you really need to do that. It's been, has it not been an encouragement reading the report from our members overseas? <clears throat> the Kazakhstan team got almost, ar- got, almost got arrested again this past week. That's twice. If they actually get arrested and suffer for the faith, I'm going to be very jealous that I wasn't with them. So encouraged to read about men preaching the gospel to a attendant at the restroom. Um, that's boldness, you know. That's that's fearlessness for the gospel of Christ. Um, looking forward to this Wednesday, uh, going to the airport, and if God wills, having the team return and just to rejoice and celebrate their return and fellowship together back with us. Um, I'm half tempted to. To paint my face, you know, <laughs> some war colors and just to rejoice and, and celebrate their victorious return and the cause of Christ. Well, um, Ireland team's coming back this Saturday as well and I look forward to their return as well. Well, to begin our study this morning in John 13, I want to relate to you a story I'd heard many years ago. I mean, almost 10 years ago, I first heard the story. And my memory fails me. I cannot remember who told me this story. And it was so long ago, I can't really remember if the story is true or not. If the story is a non-fiction story or a a fictional story or a combination of the two. I I, I don't think it's important. I want to tell you this story because it uh, helps us to understand our passage this morning, John 13, 32 through 35. Well, the story goes like this. There was a young boy um, who's, who had a mother whose face was badly disfigured. Uh, he noticed early on that his mom didn't look like other moms. Her face was um, sunken in. Her eyes were sunken in. Her skin was stretched like leather. And her face was badly scarred when... She would accompany him to school. The other children and even other parents would stare at his mom and whisper to one another about her face. And soon, the other children made fun of him because of her. Children can be very cruel. And they said many uh, nasty things concerning his mom. After a while, walking together to school... He became embarrassed, and in his heart, he half-wished that she wouldn't come along with him, that he can come to school alone. Well, one day, after a real just difficult day of many schoolmates ridiculing him and calling him and his mom many, many names, he came home crying, and he ran home, and he thought to himself how he wished that he had a different mom, how wish. He had a mom who was beautiful, whose face was normal. Well, when he came home crying, his mom asked him what had happened. And he was angry at her. Angry at her because, he said, my friends call you ugly. Uh, They're calling you a monster and calling me a freak. And he was angry at her because of her disfigurement. And he almost couldn't believe himself, but he told her, I, I, I do not want you to come to school with me. I want, to, I want never to be seen with you in public again. Uh, 
Um, they were both very upset. Um, but that's, that was his heart's truth. Well, several days later, <clears throat> walking home from school, a neighbor approached him and told him and asked him if his mother was well. He didn't know what he, what he meant. The stranger asked the boy if he knew why his mom's face was so disfigured. He had no idea. You know, he never asked why, what had happened if his mom was born that way or something had happened to her. He never even thought about it. Well, the neighbor told him that many years ago when he was just a toddler, there was a fire in their home. The whole house was engulfed in flames. And as everyone was gathered outside, they could all hear the little boy, the toddler, crying in the bedroom. The boy's mom rushed into this house to save her son from the fire. In doing so, her face was badly burned and permanently scarred. She risked her life for her son, and in doing so, she was badly injured. It was at that moment that he realized that his mom was disfigured to save his life. With tears streaming from his eyes, he ran home. He rushed in and he saw his mom and it was different this time. His mom was no longer ugly. She was not a monster. She was not a freak. Her disfigured face, her scars were now to him very beautiful. They represented to him her deep love for him. He ran and he asked her for forgiveness. And then he asked her to accompany him to school next day and every day afterwards. For now, from now for because from now on she was beautiful to him. In fact, he loved each scar on his mother's face. They were all marks of her love for him. What a moving story. It helps us. This story helps us to see the cross of Christ rightly. Because the cross of Christ, it is an ugly sight. It is a shameful sight. It's humiliating. If you were to see a man crucified on the cross today, you would turn your face because it is disturbing. It is embarrassing. It is open shame. To the world, it is ugly. It is shameful. But to believers, we love the cross. To believers, there's another side to the cross. And to us, it is beautiful because the cross represents Christ's love for us, Christ's love for God, and God's love for us. To rightly see both sides of the cross, we must start with the ugly side, the disgraceful side. We must understand that to die on the cross was considered um, just a degrading insult. It was uniquely a horrific form of capital punishment, a repugnant, demeaning form of execution. It was so awful that the Roman government refused to crucify their own citizens. It was, re- it was reserved only for those who were not the citizens of their own country. Only those who committed treason, Roman citizens, were crucified. 
Romans reserved crucifixion only for the scum of society, the most humiliated, the lowest of the low. For the Jewish people, the cross represented not only a social stigma, but a divine curse. Because the Jews believed, cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. And they consider someone who hangs on the cross, cursed not just by man, not just by the Roman government, but cursed by God Himself. So crucifixion in reality was a stark and hideous spectacle. It was, it was, it is it was surely one of the most monstrous of all human inventions. Historians tell us that scourging preceded oftentimes the crucifixion, meaning that the condemned man was whipped with, with, uh, with uh, tongs of leather to which pieces of bone and metal had been attached. There were numerous times when the scourging was so severe that the men died from scourging alone. Next, the victim was nailed through hands and his feet to a wooden cross, which was then lifted to a vertical position and fixed firmly in the ground, and then he was left simply to die. Nothing else was done. He was just left to die as a spectacle before men. By sheer animal instinct, the man would struggle to keep alive, although life meant torture. His body was slumped forward under its own weight, thereby constricting the lungs and restricting, restricting breathing. But again and again, despite the intense pain in his pierced hands and feet, he would heave his chest upwards to draw breath and stay alive. Lengthening his torture, ultimately death would come after hours and hours, often days of indescribable agony. Therefore, crucifixion was regarded with revulsion and disgust. It was the most awful way to die. It was such a shameful death that many considered that Jesus could not have been the Son of God. No way. He cannot be the Messiah. For how could God allow the Anointed One to suffer in this way? It is not an acceptable premise. The cross is most definitely the ugliest act of human history. It is the most sinful act of human history. In stark reality, in one word, it was ugly. But as Christ predicts the son of perdition, that he would go and betray the Son of God, he gives the morsel of bread to Judas. And when Judas says, is it I, Lord? Am I the betrayer? And Christ says, yes, it is you. And Christ says, go, do what you intend. And as Judas leaves, and he begins this unchain of events that would culminate in the crucifixion of Christ, it is amazing what our Lord says, verse 31. When he considers the cross, verse 31, our Lord says, Now is the Son of Man glorified. Now is the Son of Man glorified. This is remarkable. Remarkable. The most humiliating death. The prospect of the shame and the embarrassment and the torture and the pain of the cross. Christ says, Now is the Son of Man glorified. 
It tells us that the cross manifests, reveals Jesus' full glory. Our Lord glorified Himself in many ways. He glorified Himself by teaching the truth. He revealed His fullness of His glory, of His attributes, by His many miracles. He revealed His glory by the way He did His miracles. He healed the leper, gave sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf. He cured, He touched the man who was leprous and cured him of leprosy. He, he raised those who were dead. But the supreme way that Christ revealed His glory was through the cross. Our Lord's glory is supremely, supremely manifested not through His strength and majesty, not through His beauty and loveliness, not through His holiness and purity. Christ's glory was supremely revealed through the weakness and shame of the cross. In a shame-sensitive, honor-seeking culture, Christ was humiliatingly crucified, and there when He was lifted up to be mocked and rejected by the world, He revealed His glory. That's the other side of the cross. And the cross... From a human perspective, we have, the, we have the ugliest act of human history. But from God's perspective, we have the most beautiful act of human history. The question remains then, how was Jesus glorified through the cross? Jesus revealed His glory in the following ways. First of all, on the cross, we see our Lord's perfect love for God the Father. We see His perfect love. For God the Father. We see Jesus' perfect submission. Remember, our Lord, He didn't want to go to the cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, He says, Can this cup be taken from me? I do not want to undergo the judgment of God, the wrath, the condemnation of God the Father. Is there another way? But Jesus prayed, Not my will, but your will be done. Christ did not desire the cross. And yet by Him going to the cross reveals His perfect love. His perfect love and obedience to the Father. It shows us the extent of Christ's love for the Father. John 14.31, Christ said, The world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. The world must learn this. I love the Father. And I, because I love Him, I do exactly what He desires of me. And where do we learn this from? We learn it from the cross. By seeing Him on the cross, by His death on the cross, His sufferings, we see Christ making much of God. This is how much I love my Father. Look at my body. Look at the crown of thorns on my head. Look at the pain, the torture. I would even undergo being forsaken by God because of my love for Him. We see the glory of God. Secondly, on the cross, Jesus Christ there performed the greatest work in the whole history of the entire universe. He performed the greatest work. He accomplished a unique achievement on the cross. He accomplished what others could only dream of doing. He gave His life as a ransom sacrifice to redeem us from sin. 
on the cross, He rescued us. He, he saved us from God's wrath. Romans 5, 9. 1 Peter 1.18 He redeemed us from the empty way of life given to us by our forefathers. Colossians 1.13 He rescued us from the dominion of darkness and He brought us into Christ's kingdom. Romans 5.10 While we're yet enemies, Christ accomplished reconciliation. He became the mediator. The God-man brought man, sinful man, to a reconciled relationship. To God the Father. Romans 5.1 In a relationship where there was war and enmity and hatred, Christ brought peace. It was accomplished by Christ on the cross. Centuries men waited for this accomplishment. We look back upon this singular event. We see the glory of Christ and what He accomplished. Thirdly, and I love this, on the cross, Jesus destroyed sin. He did it. He was the conqueror. He triumphed. Jesus won. That's why Paul says as a believer, 1 Corinthians 15, 55-57, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, Jesus gives us the victory through the cross, through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, men thought that the law would give us victory over sin. Men thought God gave us the law, God gave us the Torah, and if I would just obey these commands, I will now conquer sin. And Paul says in Romans 8, don't you realize the law of God is perfect but the weakness lies with our sinful nature. The law is powerless to save. Why? Because of our sinfulness. We are not able to keep the law. Sin, instead of saving us, the law, instead of saving us, the law condemns us, the law judges us, and the verdict is guilty. And Christ on the cross accomplished what no man was able to do. He conquered sin. Think about it. If Jesus had committed a single sin, if He had, in a moment of weakness, had a sinful thought, if there was in His heart any hint of pride and arrogance, a modicum of impurity or selfishness, sin would have won. Jesus would be dying just for His own sins. He would be just like the robbers. The robbers said, we deserve this. We are dying here because of our sinfulness. And Jesus would have said, Me too. I'm the same lot with you. I'm dying for my own sins. But, Jesus Christ, First Peter 1.19, He was a lamb without blemish or defect. Hebrews 4.15, He was tempted in every way. Tempted in every way. Just as we are, yet He was without sin. 1 Peter 2.22, Peter says, He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. He triumphed over sin and death, and he set the captives free. All who trust in him, he set them free from the guilt, shame, and bondage of sin. Sin is indeed a cruel slave master, and Christ on the cross was triumphant over this cruel slave master, 
and he set us free. He reversed the conduct of Adam. The first Adam was disobedient unto death. The last Adam was obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Fourthly, fourth way he glorified himself, he revealed his glory. The manner in which he wrought this work, the manner in which he accomplished this work also glorified him. The Bible is clear that our Lord was a willing sufferer. That the price was cheerfully paid. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. Scorning and shame. It was, a, it was shameful. And yet out of joy, He willingly, He voluntarily went to the cross. He was led to the slaughter, not driven to the slaughter. He was not a victim. No one took His life. He gave His life willingly. He gave it joyfully, like a good shepherd. He did not run from the enemy. No, he laid his life down. He gave it willingly. Therefore, what is considered the most ugly, shameful sight, Christ dying on the cross, to us, we love the cross. To us, it is beautiful. It is at the cross because it is at the cross where Christ purchased our salvation. We love it because it is at the cross where we find our hope, joy, and peace. It is at the cross where we find reconciliation with God. The cross to believers is a glorious thing. For believers, we cherish the cross for these reasons. We love the cross. That is why we boast of the cross of Christ. Because on the cross, we see our Lord's glory. Again, what the world considers foolish, shameful, humiliating, utterly disgusting. To us, we stand before God and we thank God for the cross of Christ. Go on reading in verse 31, and we find that not only was our Lord glorified by the cross, but God the Father is also glorified to the cross. Verse 31, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. God is glorified in Him. What a theme. The cross of Christ was not only the glorification of the Son of Man Himself, but the cross of Christ is also the brightest manifestation of God's glory. On Calvary, every major attribute of God was revealed in that instant. By Christ's death, He displayed all the attributes of God. What a theme. What truth? Well, then the question is, how was Christ's death on the cross God's glorification? First of all, God, the power of God was exceedingly glorified at the cross. In, in the weakness of the cross, in the shame of the cross, Christ exceedingly revealed the power of God. 
On the cross, the kings of the earth, rulers, took counsel together against God and against the Anointed One. There on the cross, the terrible enmity of the carnal mind, the wickedness of the human heart did their worst. With the fiendish hatred of Satan was put forth to its fullest extent. And they attempted to take the life of Christ. They attempted to make Him a victim of their evil schemes. But after man and Satan had done their worst, God's power was too strong. Christ was shown to be too powerful for the guiles of man. Although Christ was crucified through weakness, 2 Corinthians 13.4, we find 1 Corinthians 1.25, the weakness of God is stronger than men. They could not take His life. They could not tempt Him to sin. They could not tempt Christ to deny His Father. Instead, He stood firm to the end. He endured it all. And in the end, He gave His life and He said, It is finished. Revealing the power of God. Secondly, the justice of God was exceedingly glorified at the cross. The justice of God. God was the offended party. God declared that He does not leave the guilty unpunished. Exodus 34, 7. God demanded justice. His justice must be satisfied. His wrath will not be held back. He was ready to judge all mankind because all men had sinned and transgressed and violated God's holy laws. But on the cross, Christ satisfied God's perfect justice. Christ accomplished the fulfilling of the demands of the law by being the perfect sinless sacrifice and satisfying the justice of God. Because He was perfect. Because He was the eternal God. You know, consider this. That if even if every member of the human race were to suffer in hell forever, God's justice would not be satisfied. If you were to say, okay, God, how about if everyone suffers in hell for a hundred years? Would that satisfy your justice? God says, no. What about a thousand years? What about ten thousand years? If every human being suffered in hell forever, would you be satisfied? No. God would, God would say no. Because He is eternally perfect. He is a thrice holy God. Only a perfect sacrifice can satisfy His justice So Christ on the cross did something that no man could could have done. He satisfied the justice of God. Thirdly, the holiness of God was exceedingly glorified at the cross. The holiness of God. Seeing how God the Father punished His own Son. The torture, the pain that Christ endured the sufferings on the cross, reveals God's holiness. How much He hates sin. How angry, how indignant, how wrathful He is against sin. 
Yes, He is a God of love. But look at Christ's body and you see God's holiness. God is so holy that He would treat His only Son in that way. Think about that. What chance do the wicked have in the sight of a holy God? If God is so holy that He would punish and torture, crucify and kill His own Son, the cross of Christ reveals God's holiness. At the same time, fourthly, the love of God was exceedingly glorified at the cross. The love of God was exceedingly glorified at the cross. I was talking to someone this past week and they were telling me they, they watched the movie Gospel of John. It's a word-for-word rendering in a movie form of, of John's Gospel. The interpretive issue is John 3.16. Is that the words of Christ or the words of John? And the brother was telling me, and I agree with the movie, that they render John 3.16 not as the words of Christ, but rightly so as the commentary of John. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. If Christ was saying that, then that giving, for God so loved the world that He gave, would be referring to His incarnation. But if John is writing that, John is referring not to the incarnation, but to the crucifixion of Christ. John is writing this later on. And he says, For God so loved the world that God gave His Son. And when did God give His Son? On the cross. And that's what John is thinking of. How did John, where did John see the love of God? He saw it when Christ died on the cross. He saw the great love of God towards God's people. 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates His love for us. How does God do that? Where do we see God's love? It's not through our lives, it's not through getting a job or getting a house or a new car or friendships or a family. It's not through health. It's not through prosperity. God demonstrates His love once and for all by giving His only Son. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Commentator McLaren said, The light of the sun is always the same, but it shines brightest at noon. And so it is with the light of God's love. God's love shines brightest through the cross. The cross of Christ was the noontide of everlasting love, the meridian splendor of eternal mercy. There were many bright manifestations of the same love before, but they were like the light of the morning that shines more and more until the noonday, until the noontime. And that perfect time was when Christ was on the cross. It is there we see great love of God. Other songwriters have articulated it this way. 
when talking about the cross of Christ. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as a flood, when the prince of life as a ransom shed for us his precious blood. Or the song that we sang last week, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch, that's us, to make a wretch his treasure. We see God glorified on the cross. Through the cross, Christ reveals the attributes of God. His justice, His holiness, and His love. Verse 32 Christ said, if God is glorified in him, and he is, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Christ tells us that through the cross he will be glorified. Through the cross he will glorify the Father. And after the cross, afterwards, Christ said, God will glorify the Son. God will glorify Jesus Christ. After the cross, he is referring to the resurrection, the ascension, and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, that was not the end. After he died on the cross, he rose again and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. 1 Peter 3.22 He went into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Philippians 2.9 and 10 Therefore God exalted him to the highest place gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is God. Well, final point, down to verses 34 and 35. We've seen how the cross glorifies Christ, the cross glorifies God the Father. After the cross, God will glorify His Son, And then, Jesus turns to His disciples and He calls us to glorify God, glorify Christ in light of the cross by loving one another. Verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Christ tells us this is the supreme way for us to glorify Christ. This is the mark of discipleship. This is the singular mark of a true Christian. This is what the church is to be known by. Christians are not to be known by special rights or habits. We are not to be known by special forms of dress or manner of speech. We are not marked as Christians by special restrictions, dietary laws, or unusual customs. What we should be known by is not our buildings, money, power, 
programs or methods, Christians are singled out by this one overriding characteristic. is love for one another. Love for fellow Christian. Our sacrificial, unconditional, and eternal love for fellow Christians. Bible students have turned this, the 11th commandment. It is a new commandment. The old commandment was love one another as you love yourself. That was a standard. But Christ says, that is old. Put it away. Let me give you a new commandment. You have a new motivation. Love one another as I have loved you. This internal commitment exists in all believers. In all believers. We are to love one another. Now, how do we do that? Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. And let's see Paul's application in light of God's mercy. You might be surprised to find out that in Romans chapter 12 through 16, in five chapters, the term one another is found eight times. So here Paul builds up for 11 chapters God's mercy. Right? God's, the gospel of Christ. God's demonstration of His love for sinners. And God's glory in all of that. In 12 through 16, he applies this great theology to life. And a key emphasis in the next five chapters is one another. One another. Romans 12.10 Paul says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Brotherly love there is phileo, not agape. It's Philadelphia, brotherly love. It means be committed to one another with tender affection. It's not enough to go to church together. It's not enough just to go through membership and to be baptized and to, to worship together and to pray together. Be devoted to one another in your heart. There should be a tender affection, phileo towards one another. If that's missing, then you're not loving one another. Honor one another above yourselves. It's the word tima in Greek. Cherish, value others more than yourself. Others in the body are more important than you. That's our attitude towards one another. That's how we love one another. Romans 12, 16 Live in harmony with one another. Pursue peace. Pursue peace. Pursue reconciliation with every member. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. The social classes was very rigid 2,000 years ago. You knew what your class was. If you're a landowner, you don't associate with slaves. Right? If you were a male, you didn't associate with females. You didn't treat them as equals. Right? If you were a slave master, or if you were educated, then you had no fellowship with those of the lower class. Paul says, no. In the church, we are one. Do away with arrogance and conceit based upon this world's labels. Do not be proud. 13.8 let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt 
to love one another. Our attitude should be always, I owe you something, brother. Sister, I owe you something. I need to repay something, and that's my love for you. That's what I owe you. Romans 14.13 Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another in disputable matters. Paul was talking about dietary issues. Paul says, these things ought not come in between believers. Do not pass judgment on things that are outside of Scripture. There should be charity, acceptance, love on all things outside of the, of, of the Bible. 14.13 Let us pursue the things which make for peace and that builds up one another. Our desire should be to build up one another in Christ. Our desire for each other should be spiritual in nature. It, should, it must not be, what can the person do for me? How can the person help me? How can the person stroke my ego and pump me up? No, our attitude should be, how can I encourage this brother? How can I edify this person spiritually? Our highest goal, our highest desire is for the spiritual edification of one another. Romans fifteen seventeen. Accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God, unconditionally, undeservedly, sacrificially, we are to embrace one another. Romans fifteen fourteen. Paul prays that we be full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, so that we would be able to admonish one another. That's, that's true love, isn't it? When I have to admonish someone, the question is always, do I love him or her? Really. I was talking to someone and the person was not designed to rebuke and correct another person in Christ. And I asked the person, well, do you love that person? I mean, that's my struggle. My life, I'm busy. I've got my own problems. I've got a family. I've got one, one more coming. I've got bills to pay. You know, I don't have time in my life to be going around and admonishing people. I've got my own problems. I can justify and rationalize all these reasons. I don't want people to like me. You know, think I'm a nice pastor, gracious pastor. I don't want people to think bad of me. The question is, do I love him? Do I love him in the Lord? Do I want him to honor Christ? Do Do I love him? Do I desire him to please the Lord? The answer is yes, and I must admonish him. Finally, Romans 16, 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Every time we meet together, there must be a warm welcoming, warm greeting towards one another. We must not be um, jaded and um, just callous towards one another. But every time we see a, a fellow believer's face, there must be a warm greeting, affectionate, embracing, a physical embracing of one another because of our love for one another. For Christians, that is how we glorify Christ. That is how the world sees the glory of our Lord. Right? Through the weakness of our love. Isn't that awesome? Right? Christ is no longer with us. You know, how many times must the disciples thought, oh, if Jesus was here. Oh, if... If Christ was here now, He could preach. If Christ was here, they would love Him. They would see Him and adore Him and follow Christ. But Christ said, 
I am going. I will not be with you. But this is how the world can see me from this point on. You are the body of Christ. And in weakness, when you love one another, they are seeing the cross. They are seeing my glory. They are seeing the glory of God the Father. And they are seeing the glory after the cross. How I am exalted sitting, hand, sitting on the right hand of the Father. Brothers and sisters, we are the body of believers. How will the world see the unseen Christ? The world will see it by our love for one another. It is not by wearing the symbol of the cross. If you wear a cross, that's great. No, I'm not. That's fine. But that's not how we show Christ. It's by living out the cross, by loving one another. Let's pray. Oh Lord, how, how believers do love the cross. How the cross is the summation of all the beauty and the glory of Christ. How it is attractive to us, like a moth to a flame. When we see the cross and the message of the cross, it, it warms our heart, it stirs our souls, and it brings us to our knees because we love you and love the cross so much. For in it is our salvation, it is our hope, it is our joy, our peace. It is the forgiveness of our sins. It represents how we have been reconciled, brought from death to life, darkness to light. And oh, how we desire the world to see the cross. Oh, how we desire the world to savor the, to, for the world to savor the cross of Christ. And you have given us instructions on how we may accomplish that. The world will see the unseen Christ by our love for one another. Lord, that we would invite unbelievers to our midst. That unbelievers would be comfortable in our context and they would see the indiscriminate, sacrificial, unconditional, eternal, abiding, deep affection and love we have towards one another. That freely out of the heart, because you have loved us so much, you will love one another and the world will see it and they will see your glory. And through that, they will repent and turn to you. God, we thank you for Cornerstone, the bride of Christ. May we be a faithful body of believers, bringing much glory unto you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.